We're well into this recommissioned series by now, and we're trying to answer from the Bible just one question, and that is, what is the purpose of the church? What are the people of God for? I I hope you're listening carefully to this series. It strikes me that if we're going to spend half of each Sunday for the rest of our lives, however long that is, doing this, being a church, and actually it's, it's not just Sundays, being part of Hamilton Road Presbyterian Church is a large part of, of all of your lives. I'd want us to know what that's all about. I'd want us to know what, what we're doing when we're a church. More than I'd want you to be interested in what I think about that, I'd want you to be very interested in what God has to say about that in his word. So that's why we're in a Bible overview that we've called recommissioned because we want to be recommissioned as the people of God. We want to be as clear as we possibly can be about what God's purposes for us are. So far, we've learned that in a culture that's increasingly lost the script, we're people who know the story that we're a part of so that the Bible is our authority. In a world where people are trashing the planet, we're called to be a people who care for creation In a world that's lost its way, we're people who will be a blessing to the nations. In a world that's broken in all sorts of ways, we're a people who are redeemed for redemptive living. And then last week, as Neil led us, we learned that we're people who represent God to the world. Those are the things we've thought about in the first five evenings in this series. Tonight, we're going to continue our journey through the Bible, and our our topic this evening is that we are to be people who attract others to God. So our theme in our worship so far has been the beauty of God, and our role, if we have a beautiful God, is to be people who help people to discover the beauty of God, who attract them. It's not hard to see how this week's theme and last week's might be related. If we learn, as we learned last week, we're representing God to the world, it's important how we represent him. It's very possible that we could be representing God to the world in a way that's repulsive, that ends up driving people away from God. Sometimes, quite frankly, the church does repel people from God. But what we're going to see this evening is that that's very far from God's purposes for us. His purposes is that he wants us to be a people who attract people to him. Chris Wright talks about this wonderful reality in his book, The Mission of God's People, on which we're basing this series. He says, part of the mission of God's people is to have God so much at the center of who we are that what we do here is a centripetal force, God's own gravitational pull that draws people into the sphere of his blessing. Right, that's quite wordy. How's your science? Your centripetal and centrifugal forces? Come on. Somebody want to come up and explain those to us? Okay, no, no takers. So, A centripetal force is one that draws you to the center. I was trying to think of the the most everyday example I could think of. Do you remember remember giving people a burly where you hold them by their hands and you swing around and and you go in circles and circles and and you go more and more and there's a, a bigger and a bigger strain on your arms? 
that's a central petal force. And you better hold on, because if you don't, they go flying off into orbit over the hedge into the neighbor's garden. So that's, that's a central petal force. It, it draws to the center. Another good example is, is in the, the planets. The gravitational pull on Earth is always pulling it back towards the center to make sure it doesn't spin off. So Chris Wright says that the, the church is to have a centripetal force. It's to draw people to the center, and that's to Jesus. He's at the very center of who we are. In another place, Wright would refer to this as missional magnetism, and I love that. He says the church is supposed to be magnetic. It's, you shouldn't be able to get past a church without being drawn in. Hamilton Road is supposed to be magnetic to the people of Bangor. You can be the judge of how well we're doing so far. John Stott reminds us of this missional magnetism from God's word in a commentary on Psalm 57. He says, non-Christian people are watching us. We claim to know, to love, and to follow Jesus Christ. We say that he's our savior, our Lord, and our friend. What difference does that make to those Christians? They're asking. Where is their God? And it may be said without fear of contradiction that the greatest hindrance to evangelism in the world today is the failure of the church to supply evidence in her own life and work of the saving power of God. Rightly, we may pray for ourselves that we may have God's blessing and mercy and the light of his countenance. Not that we may monopolize his grace and bask in the sunshine of his favor, but that others may see in us his blessing and his beauty and be drawn to him through us. Okay, we've started with two quotations, one from Chris Wright and John Stott. That, that should never satisfy us. Who, who cares in the end what Chris Wright and John Stott say? Let's, let's see what the Lord says. Let's come to his word revealed in Scripture. There's a rich thread running right through Scripture that makes it clear that attracting people to God is an integral part of the mission of the people of God. We're going to look at five. Yep, Stuart read too. We're going to look at five passages this evening. This might end up feeling a bit more like a Bible study than a sermon, but that's okay. Please grab a Bible. If you don't, I think you're going to be a wee bit bored this evening, because you're going to hear me talking about things you can't see. Grab a Bible and follow with me. First key passage, Deuteronomy chapter 4. We have that on page 182, if you're using the Pew Bible. might be wise to use the Pew Bible tonight, because we'll be able to help you. Deuteronomy chapter 4. We had a series here a while ago where we preached right through Deuteronomy, uh, Moses is speaking to the people of God. He's motivating them for godly living. He's inviting them to choose life. And here in chapter 4, he's motivating them to live for God's glory. And it's quite an intriguing argument. He, he wants them to live for God's glory on the basis of what the nations around them will think. Look with me. Chapter 4, those opening verses. Now, Israel... Hear the decrees and laws I'm about to teach you. 
Follow them so that you may live and may go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your ancestors, is giving you. If you jump to verse 5. See, I've taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me so that you may follow them in the land you're entering to take possession of it. Observe them carefully. For this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about these decrees and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I'm setting setting before you today. Folks, this makes good sense after what we were thinking about last week. If God's people are to represent God in the world, and, and Israel were, then the world's going to come to a view about God based on watching us. That is inevitable. Look at the passage. Moses wants Israel to understand three things. He, he wants them to understand that they're open to being seen. The nations will see, verse 7, that God is near to us. They'll see, verse 8, the excellence of our law. Moses wants the people to have an intimacy with God and a life with God and a quality of social justice that no other nation could match. They're open to being seen. People can see. And the second thing he wants them to think of is, well, if you're open to being seen, then, then you're open to comparison. Look at verses 7 and 8. Moses asks, what other nation? It's like he looks around and he says, yep, there's Israel, but here are the Canaanites, here are all the other ites that are around. Let's, let's compare them. Let's see how these people stack up. I grew up in a day when Carlsberg still advertised under probably the best lager in the world. They did it for years. Moses says here, Yahweh, definitely the best and only true God. Folks, I want you to think about this for a second. Do you know that people in Bangor are comparing their lives with yours? They are. And they're comparing their lives with yours as they're weighing up the faith that you have that they don't. Now, you might say to yourself, well, that's wrong. They should come to God regardless of my faith or the faith of Christian people they know. You take quite a sort of snooty view of that. You might take that view, but it's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that any human being's hunger to find for themselves the best possible life is valid. The Bible teaches that the only place they will find the best possible life is when they're reconciled to their creator through their savior, the one who came and said, I've come that they might have life to the full. Friends, if we took this teaching of Scripture on board, maybe we'd, we'd take less time justifying our half-hearted discipleship, making excuses for our woeful Christian experience. 
There is no one like Jesus. I hope you believe that. There is no one like Jesus. Any friend of yours who isn't living life with Jesus is living a second best life by far. Let's live the life with Jesus and let the world see it and then let them make their comparisons. That's what they're doing. So God's people are open to being seen. They're open to comparison. And thirdly, they're open to challenge the world. The world has no reason to pay attention to our claims about our invisible God if they don't see something visible in our lives to show the difference that he makes. If that sounds like a hard lesson for us, it's, it's what Scripture teaches. The Bible says God's people are to be open to scrutiny. They're to be open to comparison. That is entirely valid. It's time we stopped totting about our neighbors who don't have any interest in Jesus and start living in such a way that intrigues them and attracts them. Okay. First Bible passage. Let's look at a second passage. First Kings, page 345. First Kings chapter 8. While you're looking it up, let me tell you what's going on at this stage in Kings. Um, Kings begins with Solomon, the reign of Solomon. Solomon has built his temple. The, this is the high point of a golden age in Israel. After King David and then King Solomon where Solomon builds a temple. If, if you drew a graph of the Old Testament story, it would peak at this point. You've reached the very high point of the life of the nation of Israel. Solomon's built a temple. God's going to be present among his people. Solomon prays a wonderful prayer in chapter 8, dedicating the temple to God. And what is he going to express in this prayer? Look, look, look at it, beginning verse 31. He, he uses this cycle or a pattern. He, he lists a number of situations in which the, the Israelites might need God's help, where they might come to this temple and pray in disputes, after defeat in battle, in drought, in famine, in disease or siege. And in each case, he asks that God would, would hear their prayer and respond. That's, that's what's going on. That's how this prayer works. But look at verse 41. As for the foreigner who doesn't belong to your people Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your name, for they will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. When they come and they pray towards this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place. Do whatever the foreigner asks you, so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your own people Israel and may know that this house I have built bears your name. Look down to verse 54. When Solomon had finished praying all these prayers and supplications to the Lord, he rose from before the altar of the Lord, where he'd been kneeling with his hands spread out to heaven. He stood and blessed the whole assembly of Israel, saying in a loud voice, Praise be to the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel, just as he promised. Not a word has failed of all the good promises he gave through his servant Moses. 
May the Lord our God be with us as he was with our ancestors. May he never leave us nor forsake us. May he turn our hearts to him, to walk in obedience to him, and to keep his commands, decrees, and laws as he gave our ancestors. And may these words of mine, which I've prayed before the Lord, be near to the Lord our God day and night, that he may uphold the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel according to each day's need. Why? Verse 60, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God and that there is no other. That, that stuff in verses 41 to 43 is astounding. You might expect Solomon to pray. He's standing before the people of Israel. You might expect him to pray, as for the foreigner who does not belong to your people, who does not really know your ways, drive him out and keep him far away from your pure and holy temple. No. Whoosh. Draw them in. Draw them in. A centripetal force, missional magnetism. This is a God for, for not just his own, but for the nations. Draw them in. And by the way, if you flick a page in your Bible, you'll see that that prayer is answered in one of the great stories of the Old Testament. Who is it arrives, chapter 10? The Queen of Sheba. She travels a long, long way because she wants to see this beautiful God revealed in his people Israel. We're going to pause just there. I want to break the... the We're thinking here this evening about what it is to be a people who attract others to God. We've looked at a couple of Bible passages. I brought you to one of the key biblical passages actually a few months ago. Uh, before Christmas, we had a series running here on Sunday evenings in 1 Timothy, and we were thinking about the, the purpose of the church in Ephesus. Uh, we, we built our series around a key verse in chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, where Paul tells us that the church is to be the pillar and foundation of the truth. It's to stand firm on the gospel and to raise it high for the citizens of Ephesus to see. The church is to live in such a way that it attracts the citizens of Ephesus to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That night I brought you to Jeremiah 13, and I make no apology for bringing you back. I think it's just one of the, the, the most powerful passages. Uh, we don't often get to read Jeremiah. It's a long book. I don't think you've probably had a preaching series on it for a while. So let's, let's have a look at this passage. I want you to see it and not forget it. Jeremiah 13. Jeremiah is a prophet, so he brings God's word to the people. One of the things that's a little bit unique about how Jeremiah does that is that he uses what the, the theologians, the commentators call dramatic enactments. So God will sometimes tell him not just to speak words, but to act them out. And that's, that's what happens in this passage. 
Let's, let's read the opening verses of Jeremiah 13. This is what the Lord said to me. Go and buy a linen belt and put it around your waist and don't let it touch water. So I bought a wet belt as the Lord directed and I put it around my waist. Then the word of the Lord came to me a second time. Take the belt you bought and are wearing around your waist and go now to Perith and hide it there in a crevice in the rocks. So I went and hid it at Perith as the Lord told me. Many days later, the Lord said to me, go now to Perith and get the belt that I told you to hide there. So I went to Perith and I dug up the belt and took it from the place where it hidden it. But now it was ruined and completely useless. Then the word of the Lord came to me. This is what the Lord says. In the same way, I'll ruin the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. These wicked people who refuse to listen to my words, who follow the stubbornness of their hearts and who go after other gods to serve and worship them, will be like this belt, completely useless. For as a belt is bound round the waist, so I bound all the people of Israel and all the people of Judah to me, declares the Lord to be my people for my renown and praise and honor. But they have not listened. So, God's spoken to his prophet. He said, go and buy a belt. I don't think we should be thinking of this like a, a leather belt that, that I'm wearing. I, I think we're thinking of this more like a, more like a cummerbund that men used to wear when they went to a, a formal uh, something that you wear around your waist, maybe a, a wider band made of some sort of material. I'm picturing one of those. So God says to Jeremiah, buy one of those and put it on. So he does what he's told, buys the belt, wears the belt. The belt looks good and it makes Jeremiah look good. And then God's instructions start to get a bit weird. God tells him to bury the belt at Perth. Perth's beside the river. So, again, Jeremiah does what he's told. Months later, God says to him, Jeremiah, do you remember that belt that you hid beside the river? Can, can you go back there and, and get it? And guess what he finds? He finds exactly what you'd expect to find if you buried a piece of fabric in damp ground beside a river. He finds that the belt is, is all moldy, that it's full of mildew, that it's, uh, I used this word the last time and I'll use it again, it's, it's minging. The, the belt is, is gross. It's awful. Once it looked so good and now it's stinking. It's wrecked. It's good for nothing. It's not fit for purpose. It's a, it's a weird kind of a drama. And we're not entirely sure what the point of it is until we get to verses 8 to 10. God explains what he's just had Jeremiah act out. He says, in the same way that this belt's ruined, I'm going to ruin Jerusalem and the people of Judah. They haven't listened to me. They've gone their own way. They've found their own gods more to their liking. They've worshipped them instead. Because of all this, they've become useless. They're as useless as this stinking, rotten cummerbund. They're entirely unfit for purpose. I shared with you that night, and I'll remind you of it just now, because I think it's a, a lovely way of thinking about this, a powerful way of thinking about this. Uh, we, we have an expression, I, I don't know if it still goes around as much as it used to, but 
when I was a kid, if my brother came in wearing something that I thought was daft, we'd say, I wouldn't be seen dead in that. And that's what God says about the church in Jeremiah's day. You're gross, you're minging. Honestly, I, I wouldn't be seen dead in that. I don't want to be associated with you. I don't want my reputation in this world to be any way dependent on you. You are done. So a moldy piece of clothing, that's what God sees when he looks at swathes of his church. It's, it's pretty demoralizing when we read God saying things like this. But actually, everything I've said, I want to, to say is only preliminary. To look at verse 11. It's the final verse when I read this that caught my eye and it's arrested me ever since. Because for all that everything's gone wrong as played out in those first 10 verses, in verse 11 we get to see what the vision is. This is God's heart for his people. This is how he longs them to be. If you want to get right to the heart of what God's purpose for his people in this world is, then take a look at verse 11 of Jeremiah 13. For as a belt is bound round the waist, so I bound all the people of Israel and all the people of Judah to me to be my people for my renown and praise and honor. It's astonishing. It's incredible, this image. There are lots of parts of the Bible where we're told that we're to be clothed in Christ or to be clothed in his righteousness. And they're beautiful passages. I love those passages, but this is something different. This is about God being clothed in us. And it's God who's saying it. It's not even Jeremiah. Jeremiah is simply speaking God's words at this point. It's first person, the Lord. It's an incredible image. We have got to get this. God wants to wear his people. When I preached that evening from 1 Timothy, I used some pretty dramatic language. I said that a church that isn't enhancing God's reputation where it is, is not fit for purpose and it should close. I stand by that because of what I'm reading in God's word in passages like Jeremiah 13. If we're not enhancing God's reputation in Bangor, would be better to close, but the glorious truth is with the help of God's Holy Spirit, we can. We can attract people to God. And that's what he calls us to do. I'm increasingly thinking and praying about how God is leading us to do that more and more. A fourth passage, Isaiah 60, page 746. We'll be very quick with this one. Page 746. If you know anything about how Isaiah works, um, it's a book of two halves, really. The first 39 chapters talk a lot about the, the sin of Israel and nations surrounding it and God's judgment on them. But in chapter 40, something changes, and we hear a lot about hope 
for the future. We hear that God hasn't given up on his people, but that he has plans and purposes for them. Look at, look at chapter 60, these opening verses. Arise, shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth and thick darkness is over the peoples, but the Lord rises upon you and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Do you know what's beautiful about this? This is after they failed. It's after Jeremiah. It's after they've gone into exile. The second part of Isaiah would have been read by, by people sitting in Babylon with their failure ever before them. And yet, God speaks. And he says, even after you're failing, even after this exile, you're still to be people who attract the nations to your God. A fifth and a final passage. Matthew chapter 5, page 969. Very familiar, I guess, to almost all of us, but turn it up anyway. Matthew 5. Jesus is teaching his disciples. It's part of what we call the Sermon on the Mount. The way Matthew structured his gospel, this is the first thing that Jesus says to his disciples. He, he tells them in the Beatitudes about who might be welcome in the kingdom of God. But now he talks to them about who they are. First thing he says about their purpose you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill can't be hidden, neither do people put light in a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and what? Glorify your Father who is in heaven. Attracting people to God. Folks, if, if ever you think that that was just a nice wee verse that comes after some nice wee beatitudes about who's blessed, you've missed something here. This is an absolutely crucial moment. Matthew's placed it to show us its importance. This isn't just a, a nice wee slogan that Jesus has come up with on the spot. You're, yeah, you're, you're a bit like light. He's picking up Isaiah. He's picking up this biblical theme that we've been looking at that runs right through Scripture. He's saying now to these guys in front of him, you're it. You are it. If you're my people, you're the new people of God. And 1 Peter 2 might be worth a look. I said that was our final passage. Forgive me. One more. 1 Peter 2, a passage that we looked at last week. Have a look at this, and I'll show you something that might help you. 1 Peter 2. Peter shows that Matthew 5 is still valid 
20 years later, Jesus had been speaking to some rural Galilean Jews and he told them they were the people of Israel after all. He just reminded them, I suppose, you're the light of the world. It's altogether different when Peter writes to Gentiles scattered all over Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, who've never been part of Israel, never been the people of God. And he says to them, verse 11, first of all, he'd used, remember he'd used the stuff about holy priesthood, holy nation, royal priesthood, all that stuff from Exodus. We did all this last week. But look at verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Do you see he's taking you back to Matthew 5? He's just added one layer, which wasn't necessary on the shores of Galilee. Jesus said, let your good deeds shine before men and they'll glorify your Father in heaven. Peter's had to say, yeah, but living for Jesus in this culture you're in, you might face some opposition. But guess what? It's still the same calling. Let your good deeds be visible before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Even in a world of opposition, even in a secular banger, the project is still the same. The calling is not diminished. We can and must be the people who attract others to God. I'm nearly finished. Over the years, I've seen some people struggle with the kind of theology that I'm sharing this evening. And that's given me pause to think about why that might be. I sense their hesitation probably comes from a valid concern about the effects of the fall. What we know about the pervasiveness of human sinfulness. A person might listen to me and they say, yeah, Christoph, but we mustn't get ideas above our station. God won't ever use sinful people like us to attract others to him. If God's going to attract people to himself, he'll have to do it without us. You maybe identify a little bit with that instinct. It sounds very plausible and maybe even laudable as if there's some sort of humility in it. But I have a huge problem with that kind of theology. It flies entirely in the face of Scripture. It stands entirely outside of everything we've thought about here this evening. Yes, the effects of the fall continue to ripple right through every part of the universe, through my life and through yours. Yes, we're sinners and we merit nothing but God's wrath and are saved only by his grace. Yes, that's all true. But then we say this. We are created in the image of God. Our calling is to show the world who our God is. We've been redeemed so that we can bear witness to the power of the gospel 
to, to take a person and restore them. We're the new people of God. We're the new Israel now. We're the light of the world. If you have any problem with the theology I've taught here this evening, don't come to me. Speak to Isaiah. Speak to Jeremiah. Talk to Peter. Talk to Jesus himself. Because they all share one voice. And they tell us here tonight that we have been brought into God's family so that we might attract others to God. One last reason why I love this strand of, of the Bible's teaching. It's because of what it does when I see it in practice. It's the most encouraging thing to see. To see a church does what it's called to do and that attracts people to God. I can think of one occasion, I can think of many, but I'm thinking of one occasion particularly in Kirkpatrick Memorial, uh, the church where I served in East Belfast. I'm thinking of one young woman who arrived at that church quite a number of years ago now. She had never been part of a church before. She arrived at our church with her boyfriend pregnant and unmarried. And I wondered. I knew what kind of a reception I was going to give her. But I couldn't speak for the congregation. I didn't know what they were going to do. God was at work by his spirit through his word and through his people. And it wasn't long before this young woman was asking me, When's your next Christianity Explored course? She quite soon became a Christian, came to faith in Jesus Christ. I was talking to her two or three years later about the Christianity Explored course that she was leading, that she was running. When I interviewed her at the front of the church, you know that interview you do when you're about to start a Christianity Explored course, you get somebody up to the front to say how great it is and why everybody should come. We were doing that interview. And I asked her about her experience of coming into a Christian community. And I asked her what it was that made her want to come, made her want to come to Christianity Explored, made her want to come to Jesus. What was it that had made that impact on her? And she said... The people shone. They just shone. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the times when it clarifies things that aren't clear, when it rebalances things that have gone off balance. Lord, we confess here every week before you our sins and our brokenness and our need of your grace and your forgiveness. We've done that again here this evening. But Lord, we know we have a beautiful God. 
we know that if the people of Bangor only saw you as you are, they would flock to you. And Lord, you've shown us in your word here this evening that one of the ways in which you want to invite them to you is, is through us. You want us to attract people to you. Lord, forgive us for the times when we have somehow found a way of ducking out of that calling. Perhaps we've even dressed it up as piety, where we said, no, God can't use us. He, he must work himself. Lord, you've shown us in your word that you have plans for us, that you intend to use us for your glory. Lord, help us not shirk our responsibility and not to be content to live lives that are much less than you've made us for. Lord, show us your glory in new ways and then let it radiate from us and from this place. We pray it in Jesus' name.